dungeon cell. He realized he didn't have a lot of time left. He could sense that his time of departure <clears throat> was drawing nigh. To make matters worse, the people who used to come visit him, all of them except for one, had stopped visiting. Not only that, they had stopped even associating or claiming to know him. It was very unpopular to be connected to somebody who was considered and treated as an enemy to the state. So as the Apostle Paul sat there in the Mamertine prison, this is a, a picture of where we believe Paul spent his last days, weeks, months. As he sat there, he realized, I don't have a lot of time left. But something brought back to his memory a good friend. Someone who was like a son to him in the faith. Something reminded him of his young protege, Timothy. And he thought, you know what? I need to get Timothy to come here. Number one, it'll encourage me. People don't even want to know me right now. But, but more importantly, he could be useful to me in ministry. You can't really see it too well uh, right now, but there's a doorway that's been added later. But the only entrance in Paul's day was that hole in the ceiling. They would lower food down to him through that. They lowered him down into this pit carved out of rock. That's where he spent his final days. So as he sat there composing the letter that we're about to read, it was in those conditions, poorly lit. Paul probably already didn't have the best eyesight to begin with. But he sits down to write a letter. Timothy wasn't just a sidekick of his. Sure, he was younger. He was still being mentored. He was still a disciple of the Apostle Paul. But Timothy was growing He'd gone on, on trips, he'd preached, he'd done awesome works of ministry alongside of the Apostle Paul, and such that you can even find Timothy's name attached in the greeting as a co-sender or a co-author, some think. Uh, certainly co-sender, 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, uh, and several other letters of the New Testament. Timothy was a young minister with a bright future. But the Apostle Paul had seen too many bright lights grow dim. As we study this letter over the next few weeks, we're going to see that there are people who had once served alongside of Paul who now had abandoned Paul. We'll read about a bright light named Demas who had such good promise. And by the end of the letter, Paul is saying he's forsaken him because he loved the world. Paul doesn't want this to happen to young Timothy. So he sits down, knowing that winter is approaching. He writes a letter to Timothy. And in the end, he says, by the way, bring my cloak. It's cold in this place. It's going to be really cold. Bring my, bring my scrolls. Bring my parchment. Bring some things that I need. So I want to invite you to open up your Bible this, this morning. We're going to go to second. Timothy, chapter 1 is our destination for this morning. We're going to be doing something that normally is considered illegal. Reading someone else's mail, right? But this is open source. 
the letters of the New Testament, most of them, it's very obvious that they were actually sent not just to that church or to that person, but meant to be distributed widely. So I don't think the Apostle Paul would mind. I think he would be very happy that we are reading a letter he wrote. And I don't think Timothy would mind either. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul, from the very beginning, he's, he's doing this classic letter formula. You see it in all of his letters. He identifies himself as the sender. We're going to see in verse 2 who it's to. It's to Timothy. He calls himself an apostle in so many of his letters. An apostle is just someone who's literally sent by God. He knows that God has sent him on a mission. But you know, all of us have been sent on a mission. Do you realize that? We talked about this when we discussed the Great Commission not long ago. All of us have been given a mission. Same by Paul. According to the, uh, by the will of God. According to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that Paul still recognized in Jesus there's life. This was a man who had spent so much of his recent life, so much of the end of his life, chained up, locked up. But while he was bound physically, while he was confined to this dark, crowded space, he realized that there's life in Jesus. Not only the life to come, but life in our heart. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. So he addresses it. Verse 2. To Timothy, my dear son. There was a special connection between Paul and Timothy. Some special bond that had formed between Paul and Timothy on their travels, on their journey together. And I could just think back in my own experience, mission trips that I've gone on, special mission projects, even just one-day outings. Or I think about my time on Youth Evangelism Team, where I was traveling the conference for three years and had close companions I was working with in ministry day by day by day by day. And i tell you what, I can call up Maurice Graham. Some of you might know who he is. He works down at the Fresno Central Church. We worked together for two years. And there's a special bond I have with Maurice because I've worked in ministry with him. It's just a, a special bond. We're talking about unity in our Sabbath school lesson. If we want to be united as a church, something that's going to really help with that is letting the Holy Spirit fill us and then together working on a mission, on a project together in ministry. And then he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord. You know, it's interesting, he says, grace, mercy, and peace. I, I discovered this week that in most of Paul's letters, he just says grace and peace. In fact, when I was at seminary, most often the dean of the seminary would address this, he would start off his address to the seminary by saying, grace and peace to you. He had kind of this accent, really cool accent from Europe. I didn't do it super well. That's all right. But that, that was how he would address the seminary. But Paul didn't just say grace and peace this time. He added mercy. Mercy. Grace and mercy. Spurgeon, the great pastor, said, pastors need more mercy. 
Because when you look at 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, Paul added in mercy. The rest of the epistles, they just have grace and peace. I don't know what that means, but it was interesting to note. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's there in prison, remember this. And he's saying, God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of peace. Paul recognizes he's about to die. But you can tell his heart has been bathed by the Holy Spirit even in this dungeon. He's still able to say grace, mercy, and peace. And then notice the first words after the introduction. Start in verse 3. After the, the concluding or the, the, the introductory remarks in verse 3, his beginning statement is, I thank God. I thank God. Boy, Paul practiced what he preached. He could be content in good times and in bad times. His heart was refreshed by the Spirit of God day by day. So he starts his letter off to Timothy, I thank God. By the way, Paul's getting old by this time. If you do some research, I was shocked to, to learn that one of the main causes of death, if not the main cause of death, during that time in the ancient world was actually the loss of teeth. Think about it. They didn't have good dental care in those days. So as time went on, people would just lose teeth one by one. And by the time you're about 60, you maybe only have about five teeth left in your mouth. And so the loss of teeth leads to malnutrition, which then leads to death. Paul probably doesn't have a lot of teeth at this point. Doesn't have a lot of strength. His eyesight's probably not too good. He's in a prison. He's about to die. But he starts off his letter and he says, I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Paul was the one who said pray without ceasing and he practiced it. As he was Going through his day, not that you can do a whole lot while you're in a cell like that. He was praying, uplifting Timothy, uplifting the other saints, the other churches that he had planted. We need to be praying for each other. We need to be praying for one another. He remembered Timothy in his prayers. And then verse 4, he says, I recall your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. We don't know the exact nature of Timothy's tears, but probably, as happened in other cases, as Paul was leaving Timothy, the most, uh, the most recent time, there were some tears because there was such a special connection between the two. You know what that's like because you've had to say goodbye to a family member, a friend, a girlfriend. I know what that was like when Sarah and I were dating. When we were engaged, we had a lot of long distance and there were some tearful goodbyes in that time. There were some elders you can read about in Acts who, who just wept when Paul left them because they sensed that would be the last time that they'd ever see Paul on this earth. There were some tears that Timothy had cried, but Paul wanted to be reminded uh, now he wanted to, to be reunited with Timothy that he could be filled with joy. 
Remember, Paul has been abandoned by most people. In fact, if you, if you go, just look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. By the way, that's the only thing we know about these two men. They deserted Paul. If there was one sentence written about your life, one sentence to summarize your life, what would you want it to be? You sure wouldn't want it to be, he deserted Paul. He deserted the gospel, would it? Something to think about. What would you want the one sentence to summarize your life to be? Paul feels deserted, justifiably so. He did have one special visitor, (coughs) other than Luke, who was still with him. Verse 16 says, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. We'll talk about shame here again in a moment. On the contrary, verse 17, When he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So Paul had the the visit of his friend. He had Luke, who we'll find out later, who's still with him. But for, for the rest of them, they've all abandoned him. Not only that, they're ashamed of him. Ashamed of his condition. So Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's just remembering, oh, here's a guy who just really cares for me. Here's a guy who's faithful in ministry. And it would be so nice if he would come and visit. It would be so useful. Verse 5, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Go with me real quick to the book of Acts chapter 16. It gives us some details about this family. Acts chapter 16 Verse 1, 2, and 3. Because Paul and Timothy says, you've got some good family members who have faith. You've got Lois. You've got Eunice. And now I believe that same faith is in you. Notice Acts chapter 16. We get a little insight into the history of how this came to be. Verse 1, he came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named who? Timothy lived, where his mother was a Jewish, a Jewess, and a believer, but whose father was a what? A Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So apparently what's probably happened is Paul, in his missionary travels, has come to this area, Iconia, Lystra, and he does what he normally does. He goes into the synagogue, he starts preaching, and Jews become converted, they believe in Jesus. Then he also goes to the other surrounding people, the Gentiles, and he raises up a church in that area. And apparently, Timothy's mother and grandmother join in. Uh, They accept Christ as their Savior. Uh, They came from a long line of Jewish believers. But the dad, we don't know a lot about him. He's a Greek. He's an unbeliever. 
We're not sure if he was in the picture or out of the picture or not. But praise God, from what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 1, the faith of the mother and grandmother had had a profound effect upon this young man. I don't know what sort of family situation you come from or or what sort of family situation you find yourself in, but God can work through you and your faith profoundly to reach your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your neighbors, even your spouse. We just have to stay faithful to our Lord and Savior. Even though he came from a divided home, Timothy had also accepted this faith. So we pick up the story, we pick up his letter back in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's not enough to simply have godly parents. We have to also accept the faith. Paul says, I'm persuaded, though, this faith has lodged itself in your heart, Timothy. And then we get into the heart of his encouragement because Paul recognizes Timothy is a bright young man. He has a bright future, but he's a little bit timid. And if left to himself, he might just kind of fade into the background spiritually. And so beginning in verse 6, he starts to really begin to encourage him to be faithful. Verse 6, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Paul had laid his hands on Timothy. He prayed a special prayer. And by the way, in the New Testament, laying on of the hands is not simply for ordaining. We see other examples. Paul had hands laid on him a couple of times by people. It was a way that they would pray together. It was a special prayer. Paul had done this for Timothy. He recognized in him the gift of God, prayed that God would fill him with the Holy Spirit. And just because you've been baptized or you've been filled with the Holy Spirit at one point in your life, it doesn't mean that you just have to sit back and wait for God to somehow stir you into action. Right? We kind of sit here and we think, now when God really lays it on me, then I'm going to do big things for him. Paul's saying that's not how it works. You've been given a gift, Timothy. Fan up the flame. Cooperate with the Spirit. There's a fire that's been planted in your heart, but it needs a little bit of air. You know how it is if you have a, a, a wood stove in your house? Been using it during the winter maybe, and uh, you, in the morning, you come to your stove and you just see a bunch of ashes, but then you... You kind of fan away the ashes and then there's a little coal that's been left over from the fire the night before. A lot of times if you are patient, you fan it a little bit, you put some paper on it, some little kindling sticks, you can often get that back into a flame, right? Those of you who have messed with fires know what I'm talking about. So, so Timothy has been given a gift. He's, he's powerful for God, but... Because of his fear, his timidity, he kind of shrinks back a little bit from that. So Paul's saying, don't just wait for God to suddenly like, push you out on the front lines for him. You have a part to play in this too. You can cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Fan into flame this gift because God gave us power. The spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of self-discipline. Love and power have to go together, right? 
If you're just powerful but you're not loving, that's a very, very dangerous combination. And along with that, you need to have self-discipline, self-control. Then verse 8, so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or, what's the next word? Ashamed, in some translations at least, of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. We've seen this word ashamed, at least in the NIV, a couple of times already. See, in Paul's culture, thinking culturally, they lived in what we call an honor-shame society. Honor was extremely important. And being shamed, that was extremely bad. Even, with, even as we look to the Middle East right now, or other Eastern cultures, we still see these very strong, dominant themes, cultural themes. You've heard maybe in the news sometimes about honor killings. That happens when someone in a household has been shamed by someone else for whatever reason. And so the family feels like the only thing they can do for their name to be honorable is to go kill that person. And we see this in the Bible. Uh, I was thinking about the story where David's men had been shamed by the Amalekites. Um, actually, they were the Ammonites in 2 Samuel chapter 10. They did something very shameful. They, they shaved off half of the beards and they cut off their garments right here at the private parts. And, and then they said, all right, go back now. Today, if that happened, we'd probably be like, whoa, careful. But we would, I probably would laugh, you know, if my friend's beard had been half cut off. I'd think that was funny. But in those days, no, that was deeply shameful. In fact, David said to his men, you stay in Jericho until your beard grows out full again. Honor and shame. I remember hearing a story coming from uh, a girl in this honor-shame society who had become pregnant, um, not married, and so forth. And so her boyfriend was saying, well, there are a couple of options. And they weren't attractive options. But one of the options was to take care of it, as some would say. Go have an abortion, right? Now for her, let us set aside the abortion issue, she knew if I do that, I have to admit what has happened. And so for her, she said, I would rather kill myself than to have anybody find out what I've done. There's a lot of levels of complexity and a lot of things we could talk about in that story, but this just illustrates how powerful the honor-shame concept was in these cultures. To have your name, your family honor intact was worth everything. It was worth even life itself. And so as Paul is bringing up the word shame, ashamed, he's not doing it lightly. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's a very powerful statement because when you think about it in their culture, he's following and worshiping someone who was executed as a prisoner of the state in the most shameful Disgusting way possible, naked or near naked, lying on a cross for everybody to see, hanging on a cross. That's the, the God, the Savior that they are proclaiming and worshiping. And for some, that was just too shameful. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. And now he's encouraging Timothy, don't give in to this. Don't be ashamed of me, the prisoner of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of my chains. First of all, he said, don't be too timid. 
And now he's saying, don't be ashamed. Oftentimes, fear and shame go together. But the gospel wants to drive these things out. Join with me, he says there at the end of verse 8, in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. We're reminded here of the essential truths of the gospel. We're not saved because of what we've done. We're saved because of what he has done. Amen? Amen. By his grace. This grace has been given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. I'm tempted here. I won't go there today. Some other time we'll talk about how God has had this plan from before the foundation of the world, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We'll talk about foreknowledge. We'll talk about predestination and how how to understand these terms in light of what the Bible teaches. But God, in his ultimate wisdom, put a plan into, into action, had a plan, and it was carried out in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Basically, Paul, once again, he's in this cell. He's in this prison. And he's thinking about his life. He's thinking about Timothy and how Timothy might be tempted to be ashamed of what's going on. But because Paul knew the gospel, because he knew who his Savior was, he knew that he didn't have to be ashamed of anything. His present circumstances didn't matter ultimately because he knew who his Savior was. And he says exactly that in verse 12. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Because of the gospel, because of who our Savior is, this is why I'm suffering. Yet, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Because Paul knew who his Savior was, because he knew what the message of the gospel was, he wasn't ashamed. Friends, when you're grounded in who Jesus is and who you are in him, you don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be afraid to speak up for your faith. You don't have to be ashamed to represent Jesus in our life. There are three main ways that we testify for Christ. Number one is simply through our lifestyle. You don't have to live ashamed and try to hide a Christian lifestyle. You can boldly and confidently represent Jesus. Number two, you don't have to be ashamed of your church friends or afraid to let people know, I go to church, I hang out with Christians, with Adventists. Paul wasn't ashamed. He's saying, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. I'm the Lord's servant. I'm here in chains, but don't be ashamed. We represent Christ by not being ashamed of our godly associations. Even though we're supposed to have friends, we're supposed to be the salt of the world. And number three, we testify of Christ by saying things, by proclaiming the good news, by participating in GLOW, by participating in the Bible study program we were doing the training for last night, 
by praying for other people, by looking for opportunities to be a witness to your neighbors and co-workers. We testify of Christ and we demonstrate, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because we know in whom our faith is. Last couple of verses of this chapter, since we've already looked at the last ones. Verse 13. You heard from me. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard it. The things you've heard, hold on to it. Verse 14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Talking about the Holy Spirit this month, this quarter, The Holy Spirit is what allows us to guard what's been given to us. We're given wonderful, precious promises in our Bible. We learn wonderful things here in our Sabbath school lesson. Wonderful things here um, in church. Wonderful things in small groups that happen throughout the week. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to hold on to it, apply it in our lives. So Paul, as we kind of encapsulate what we've seen in this first chapter. He's thinking about his life, his present circumstances. He realizes his only hope now, since he's about to die, is to encourage people who are free. And he thinks about Timothy, and he thinks about the potential he has, but he doesn't want his, his flame to grow dim. And so he encourages him Stir up the gift of God. Use the gift that God has given you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do not be ashamed because you know the gospel, you know our Savior, and you know what is to come. Question I have for us this morning, do we know in whom we have believed? I'm not going to sing the song to you from our hymnal that has these words from verse 12. You can sing it on your own, in your own home later. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed in. And I'm persuaded that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. Do you know the one you believe in? And does this knowledge cause you to be bold for God? That's what this knowledge led to for Paul. How is it in your own life? Harry Houdini was the great magician and illusionist, escape artist. Lived a long time ago. He died in 1926. He would mesmerize audiences with all sorts of incredible escapes, handcuffed while submerged in tanks of water while hanging above the crowd while in a straight jacket. He would do all sorts of amazing things. But of course, as many of you know, he died an untimely death after a blow to the stomach and appendicitis. But before he died, he said to his wife, then in 1926, he said, I will escape death and I will come back to you. And every year, people are waiting Still waiting. Halloween, they have seances, special times where they're trying to communicate with Houdini, but he still hasn't broken the silence. We could tell you why. We know why it's in our Bibles. The living know that they shall die, but the dead know nothing. 
They didn't really realize Houdini's wife and these people who still hope to communicate with Houdini. They don't know who they are believing in. They don't really know who they're believing in. But we know someone else who before he died said, I will come back to you. He came back less than three full days later and appeared to them. And it's that Savior with that gospel who Paul said, I know this guy, and because I know him, I'm going to live my life and give my life in his service. Not ashamed. Do you want to unite yourself with the Apostle Paul in knowing this Savior and proclaiming this Savior? That's my desire. Dear Father, we're so blessed to have all of these promises, all these things that encourage our hearts. Even in the midst of a, a situation that seemed hopeless, the Apostle Paul was still able to thank you. He was still able to rejoice because he knew you. And we want to know you too, Lord. Day by day, we want to get to know you better. And we want to proclaim you so that others can know you too. The one that we believe in, the one that we're persuaded is able to keep us and guard us until that great day. To you we entrust our lives. In Jesus' name, let all God's saints say, Amen. Happy Sabbath. We will not see you next week here. I hope to see you at CVCA in the gymnasium for our